It's not uh, bragging if you can really do it. That, uh, that saying is uh, variously attributed to uh, Babe Ruth, the baseball great, uh, and in alternate form, uh, it's not bragging if you can back it up, I think is uh, what Muhammad Ali is supposed to have said. And I suppose that um, in the world of sports, you can make claims and not be able to back them up for whatever reason. Uh, but Jesus, in our passage this morning, is going to make a claim that no one thinks he can back up. And yet, he's going to act by saying something. It's interesting that actions speak louder than words, we say. But when the words are the action, you know you're dealing with God in the flesh. Let's turn to um, um, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Now, let me uh, put the setting of this passage in place for you and then talk about the scene. And then we're going to focus on five different people or groups of people as we walk our way through the passage. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The setting of this passage is in the context of Mark's gospel, the growing popularity of Jesus and his ministry. At first, he tells people, don't, you know, don't tell anyone I've healed you, because he really doesn't want the notoriety. And yet, in spite of his uh, admonition uh, not to go public with this, uh, the recipients of several healing miracles have gone public. It's in the tabloids. And everywhere Jesus goes, the paparazzi are there. Well, they weren't taking pictures, but they were expecting miracles. And everywhere he went, there were crowds. There's going to be a moment here at the beginning of our passage where he's home back in Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, for a moment or two. But this section begins a series of controversies between Jesus and his opponents that are going to, to uh, lay the groundwork, if you will, or sow the seeds of what was going to happen to Jesus later. I'll try to point that out when we get there. <clears throat> That's the setting of our passage in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark really breaks into three sections. There's the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, aptly titled, The Beginning, uh, like Mark does. And then there's a ministry section in which Jesus demonstrates who He is, and what his message is. And then the latter part of the, the uh, uh, about half of the book actually uh, details Jesus' death, his passion, the, the run up to uh, the last week of his earthly life in Jerusalem. So you could title that last section of Mark if you wanted the passion of Jesus as well. This section that we're in, the ministry section of the Gospel of Mark, breaks into three sections itself. And uh, our passage is found in the first of these three sections. And really the subject that Mark is tackling is Jesus' authority. Who is Jesus? Why should we listen to Him? And then uh, the last uh, two sections of the ministry 
segment of Mark's Gospel or his teaching, uh, chapter 4 and 5, especially, you know, the parables of the kingdom and so on is going to show up there. And then the, the issue of his mission and the mission of the disciples as well is going to appear here in this section. So now that we've got an idea of where this uh, passage lies in the Gospel of Mark, let's have a look at it. The scene is Capernaum in Galilee. It's on the shore of Galilee, Kafarnahum, if you want to know, uh, the town of Nahum. It's also famous for having been a place where the prophet Nahum lived. And the scene is a crowded house and doorway. Not everyone was there because they liked Jesus. And so the crowds that follow Jesus have mixed motives. Some of them are there to hear the word spoken. Others are there because they think they can get something from Jesus. A healing, perhaps. A kind word. Others are there to criticize Jesus and to trap Him in what He might say. Let's have a look at the passage. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When He come back to Capernaum, that is, after a successful circuit of, of uh, itinerant preaching in the area of the Galilee, several days afterwards it was heard that He was at home. Jesus had settled in Capernaum and uh, he had been using Capernaum as a base for his operations in Galilee. And uh, we don't know whether he owned a house. There is some speculation that perhaps he didn't, given what he says, that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But perhaps this is the home of Peter, one of the first disciples he called. And if that's the case, it certainly was a small house. They found that house, actually. It's uh, across the street from the synagogue uh, where Jesus performed uh, some healing and did some teaching. And it's a, the houses in Capernaum are very small. The ones, they've, the, the ones they have uh, excavated are at most 18 feet across because the... Uh, the construction materials you could use in those days, basically your engineering was limited to uh, how long a tree trunk you could get uh, <clears throat> for support beams. So 18 feet is about the size of a house. And that's why in verse 2 it says, And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Can you imagine this scenario of a house about, well, I don't know, I mean, help me with the dimensions here, but it's probably about the size of this group of people right here. Okay? It's not, e it's not even standing remotely over here. What's, what's, what's wrong with you people? Move over here. <laughs> but the, uh, the experts tell us that, that uh, you could cram maybe about 50 people into this house, and then maybe the fire marshal would show up and, <laughs> and tell them, that, oh, they didn't have fire marshals then. Well, hmm. Uh, <clears throat> but you could fit maybe about 50 people in there and uh, maybe there might be some room for somebody to sit down but uh, in this case it becomes fairly obvious that no one really has any room to sit 
And then, not only that, the door is blocked, and even the approach to the door from the street is blocked. So we've got this crowd pressing in on Jesus, and here he is teaching the word. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I, I, I wouldn't have liked a crowd that size to, to be crushed in there. I, I'm, I discovered while having an MRI that I am claustrophobic. It's a wonderful time to discover your problems. But the house is crowded because some people want to hear him, other people want to criticize him, some people just want to see a spectacle. But here he is speaking the word to them. I've pointed this out before as we've looked at Jesus' ministry, but he is primarily known as a teacher. Miracle working isn't the primary focus of Jesus' ministry. But now that we've established the setting of the scene here, I want to look at five different people or groups of people, lenses by which we can look through and see what's going on in the passage. And this is sort of the order in which they occur, although it's hard to fit the Son of Man in here because Jesus is the center of the, uh, of the passage, and what He says and does is the center of the passage, but He appears uh, in multiple places here in the, uh, in the scene. But we start with the paralytic and move to his friends, and then we're going to talk about the Son of Man, who is Jesus, and then the scribes, and then the crowd, their response. Now, they aren't actually named a crowd here in this passage, but it, they're called everyone uh, toward the end of the passage. So five people or groups. Let's start with the paralytic then. A man who is paralyzed, we don't know his name, we don't know why he was paralyzed or what caused his paralysis, but he's paralyzed. Verse 3, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, uh, this, this passage really does raise the question about the relationship between sin and sickness because the solution to his paralysis is the forgiveness of his sins. Is it right to say, though, that in every case sin results in sickness? Or, put it the other way, if you're sick you must have sinned? There are some places in the scriptures that would, uh, would bear that thinking out. You look to the Old Testament, there's at least three different leprosy incidents that are direct cause of God's judgment on the person so affected. You think about Miriam... Moses' sister, who had a problem with his choice of bride and the Cushite woman in Numbers chapter 12. There was Gehazi, Gehazi Elijah's uh, uh, a servant who was trying to make a quick buck, well, talent, um, from Naaman, the Syrian, the commander of the Syrian army. He says, uh, he goes after him and... and uh, 
he receives leprosy as, as a result of his effort, of his greed. There's Uzziah, king of Israel in Second Chronicles, chapter 26. He tried to usurp a priest's job, tried to burn incense to Yahweh in the temple. I'm not supposed to say Yahweh, am I? He tried to burn incense to Hashem in the temple. See, I've been teaching my students when they read the Tetragrammaton to say Adonai. But Uzziah tried to burn incense to the Lord in the temple. But he was a king, not a priest. And so God struck him with leprosy. So there are situations in the Old Testament when you will find that people are afflicted at least by leprosy, if not by other diseases, uh, because of sin. Then you think about Job's friends who show up on his doorstep and say, come on, tell us. I mean, you must have committed some sin for this to happen to you. And yet Job is completely innocent uh, of what his friends might be accusing him of. He's not sinless, to be sure. But Job is completely innocent in his situation. So really there's no definitive set of issues that will lead you to, or set of passages that will lead you to the conclusion that all sickness is a result of, a direct result of personal sin. Granted, I'll grant you this. Sin and sickness are related because Adam sinned and because of the curse. The world is an unfriendly place to us. But in every case, you don't have the right to say whether an illness is sin or not. In John 5, you remember the guy at the pool of Bethesda? also paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus grants him healing apart from having to get down into the water. And he says to him, don't sin anymore so that nothing, hap nothing worse happens to you. So you might think, ah, oh, there we have it. You know, Jesus said this. Go over a few chapters though and you go to the man born blind in John chapter 9 and his disciples say, Hey, you know, we got the theology of this down. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus says, mm -mm. nope, wrong question, guys. Uh, I did this to glorify myself. So is there a relationship between sin and sickness? Yes. Can you say in every case, what caused it? No. But in this case, the paralytic is afflicted because of his sin. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. We'll come back to the paralytic in the healing though because I think that his primary focus in coming to Jesus was not to be healed, but to be forgiven. But let's talk about his friends and what friends they were. Friends, family, we don't know who they are. I mean, the paralytic doesn't have a name. 
the four guys who are carrying him, no name. Being unable to get to him, verse 4, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Can you imagine? You know, Jesus is there teaching in this kind of low ceiling place, and suddenly, rumble, 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 an opening in the roof, and they let this guy down into it. Can you imagine the spectacle? Of it all, uh, <clears throat> you know, Mark. Mark is this man of action in his descriptions, so he doesn't t- he doesn't bother to stop and tell you. And Jesus looked up at the roof and put his arms on his uh, on his hips and and said, "Gosh, man, I can't believe how often I get interrupted when I'm teaching." <laughs> you know, but you can imagine that you know because they used to make these roofs now. A little background here on this. Basically, you know, the average person's house was kind of like a box, basically. And the roof was one of the rooms of the, of the house. Now, actually, even in Deuteronomy, you're supposed to even put a parapet around a, a building so that someone can profitably use the roof without falling off. So. But uh, the roof is accessible from the outside by climbing up a ladder or a staircase and you use that to perhaps grow vegetables or perhaps relax in the cool the evening in a climate like that, especially you know, the Sea of Galilee where you get that kind of ocean breeze or lake breeze perhaps, sea breeze coming off it. And it's a common occurrence for someone to be on the roof. You know, just like when Jesus says in the, uh, the Olivet Discourse, uh, let him who is on top of his house not go down to fetch the things that are in the house, but get out of town. You know, that means make a quick uh, getaway. And so they dug into this roof. Can you imagine? They aren't even worried about the destruction of property because they're so focused on, on getting their way to Jesus And the paralytic is so intent on getting to Jesus that they'll go to any length to get him there. When's the last time you went through the roof for Jesus? (laughs) But doesn't it tell you something about how valuable being next to Jesus is? How many of us would, would go to any length to get to Jesus? How many of us would go to any length to bring someone to Him? Uh, Because they cross all kinds of boundaries, all kinds of obstacles. And what you find in the healing miracles very often in the Gospels is that someone will overcome an obstacle to get to Jesus. Like the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus wanting help. And he says... I only came to the lost sheep of Israel. You can just see him elbowing his disciples and them going, yeah, yeah. But her persistence overcomes the obstacle that he intentionally set for her. She says, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall under the table. It's a, it's a real slap in the face to the disciples, isn't it? 
Yeah, let's, let's just see how racist you can be. This Syrophoenician woman overcame the obstacle to get to me. And uh, she'll get help. Just like these guys. They overcome an obstacle to get to Jesus. You see who it is. It's the crowd is the obstacle. And it's not always the, the recipient of the, uh, of the miracle who exercises faith. Sometimes it's a family member. Sometimes it's a combination. And so we've talked about the paralytic for a moment. We've talked about his friends who will overcome any obstacle to get him to Jesus. And now we come to the center of the story, of course. The center of the gospel is the Son of Man. Now, who is this Son of Man, you ask? They ask that in the Gospel of John, too. Who is this Son of Man? Well, let me tell you who he is. Let's see who he is by what he says. Jesus, seeing their faith. See, how did he see their faith? He saw their faith by what they did to overcome this obstacle. Now, keep that in mind, that Jesus sees his, the paralytic's friend's actions. In a moment, that'll become, the contrast will become even clearer. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this word son is a really endearing kind of term. Here is Jesus, the friend of sinners. He says to this man who is obviously afflicted, who obviously needs forgiveness, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Notice he said son, not boy. You know, not boy, you better straighten up. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. This is, a, this is the term that really endears this man to Jesus. He's, Jesus is creating this close relationship between the two of them. There's no implication of a family relationship between them. He's just he's calling him son. But then he goes on to say in verse 10 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. The Son of Man is a person unique in God's plan. Go back here in the center of our story. Notice what he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is God's agent for His plan for humanity. <coughs> now, you've heard me teach about the Son of Man a lot, and you might think, well, yeah, he just picked this passage because it's got the Son of Man in it. I assure you, I didn't. But I've talked a lot about the Son of Man because it's Jesus' favorite designation for Himself in the Gospels. Hardly anyone else in the New Testament calls Him Son of Man. The only one I can think of is Stephen as he expires, saying, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand. So, 
What's important about this title, the Son of Man, is that Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, in the middle of Daniel's vision, God has given to Daniel to reveal about what the prophetic future of humanity is. Daniel 7.13 says that one like a son of man came on the clouds and was given authority by the ancient of days, that is God. And in chapter 7 verse 22 of Daniel, he's given authority to execute judgment. That means that the Son of Man is the end times person. That means that God's eschatological plan for the way human history is to be laid out centers on this person of the Son of Man. The Son of Man, of course, is not simply a designation for Jesus' humanity because to exercise divine authority you have to be God. So the Son of Man is not just a human being, He is also God. Doesn't it work perfectly for Jesus to use this title for Himself rather than some other title He might have used like Messiah or Son of David? And what you notice when people apply titles like that to Him, He instead responds with, I'm the Son of Man. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. Hey, well, you've got that right. But listen, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. You recall that scene in all of the Gospels. All three of the Synoptic Gospels record that scene where Jesus replies. Even in the trial scene, when they ask Him, Are you the Christ? He says, Son of Man. Because people in Jesus' day misunderstood Messiah. They didn't know what Messiah really meant. They had their own baggage they invested that term with. And Jesus wanted to, to avoid that. But the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. This is why... I had, uh, I had Alex read Matthew 11, 2-6 as our scripture reading this morning because this is the real reason why he performs this healing here is to demonstrate that what he can say, your sins are forgiven, really is true. Because you can't see it if Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. But you can see it if Jesus says, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. So there's the Son of Man. The paralytic brought by four of his friends to the Son of Man. We now meet the scribes. Interestingly enough, this is a strange passage because up until now we haven't been told that they're here. So you're reading along in this passage, there's this crowd of people. Jesus says to the, to the man, you know, instead of saying... Instead of just healing him right there on the spot, instead of castigating him and his friends for interrupting the Bible class, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
He probably said that with kind of an East Texas twang, too. <laughs> and suddenly there appears in the narrative the enemies of Jesus. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Now, I want to pause on sitting there. Now, think about this for a minute. I mean, I, I played this up for, for a reason, okay? Standing room only, right? There's not even room at the door. I mean, there's people kind of trying to listen in. They're like, hey, could you move? Did he say, blessed are the cheesemakers? No, I think, no, no, that's not what he said. What? Would you be quiet? I can't hear. You know. Okay, so it's standing room only. And suddenly we find there's these guys sitting there. What? In chapter 12 of Mark, and in its parallels, Jesus says, Watch out for these guys. Watch out for scribes and Pharisees who love the first seats in the synagogue. See, sitting down is this privilege, their, their social privilege of being scribes, because they're, after all, the experts in religious matters. We have to be here to check to see that Jesus is doing things properly, you know. They're the experts. They're exercising their privilege. I can imagine they elbowed their way in and sat down. And so they were sitting there, and they were reasoning in their hearts. Now, I want you to see the contrast between, between the scribes and the paralytic's friends and the paralytic. Okay? They lower Jesus in, right? They don't say a word. At least Mark doesn't record anything, any spoken request. It's fairly obvious what they want, but the way Mark sets this up, it's just, it's just brilliant. They don't say a thing. And neither do the scribes. But they say it in their heart. They say it in the words in their heart. They're sitting there. They're not lifting a finger to help the guy who needs help. They're not getting out of the way because this guy needs to get to Jesus. No way. They're part of the obstacle. Isn't it funny that that's what religious people often are? An obstacle to getting to God? Religion is an obstacle to getting to God because they'll say, hey, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this. And then you've got to hope that God is going to accept you. You've got to just hope that you've done enough. So they're sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're sitting there and they're stewing in their hearts. This is what they're thinking. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know when Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Some people say, Well, you know, Jesus really wasn't forgiving his sins. He, he was just saying, They're there. Take courage, you know. You can just get over your psychological little problem here of the paralysis and when you finally do, you can get up. Or maybe he was just saying your sins are forgiven the way priests could say your sins are forgiven. You know, I mean, the priests don't actually forgive sins in the temple, right? They just say, hey, you've offered the sacrifice, your sins are forgiven. You know, if we didn't have the rest of the passage, 
Maybe you could think that. But his enemies certainly understand and take his full meaning. Because they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? The blasphemy charge against Jesus is that he has arrogated to himself, he has usurped to himself something that is God's prerogative alone. That is, to forgive sins. And you know what's funny is, he has that right. They don't recognize it. Now here's the seedbed for the charge against Jesus in the passion part, the death part of, of Mark's gospel. Because in the trial scene, and I'll use trial in air quotes, really wasn't a trial, not in any legal sense of the word. It's not even a properly called evidentiary hearing. But okay, I'll just put it in air quotes. At Jesus' trial, blasphemy is the charge against him because he says, I'm the Son of Man. So here is Mark foreshadowing the conflicts between Jesus and the religious crowd. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they, were, that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Isn't that funny? Here's another prerogative of God, and that is that God knows the hearts of men. He knows what you're going to say before you even say it. He knows exactly what's going through your mind. And here's the irony is they haven't said anything and he knows what they're saying. Uh, I'm sure Mark had a good time writing this because this is just, this is rich. It's kind of like, you know the scenario at, at Simon the Pharisee's house where the, where the, where the woman comes in and is anointing his feet and, and wiping, his, wiping his feet with her hair and, and everything. And, and here's Simon thinking, yeah, well, if he only knew. If he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him. And of course, Luke has a good time writing this too because he says, Jesus says, Hey, Simon, I have something to tell you. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You know. So here's the irony is that Jesus has all of the powers of the prophet at his disposal in all of these scenarios in which his critics are, are stewing in their own juices. Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. It's fair enough. I mean, I could say, your sins are forgiven. I can't back that up. I mean, I can't actually say, your sins are forgiven, and it, and it actually happened. I, now, I can say, have you believed in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and grant you eternal life? And if you said yes, if I took your... If I took your declaration at face value, I'd be able to say, yeah, your sins are forgiven. But that's different than what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, son, your sins right now 
are forgiven. I have authority on the earth, and I mean, not in some eschatological future, but right now, I can tell you this, your sins are forgiven. And that's exactly what his uh, opponents understand. So he has to back it up. And the miracle is the backup. See, it's not bragging if you can back it up. Right? If you can say your sins are forgiven, well, okay, you, know, I, you can't see that because, well, there's a veil over your heart. Your heart of heart, you can't see spiritually. So, I'll tell you what. I'll just let this guy get up and walk out. He comes in through the roof <laughs> on a stretcher, picks it up, and goes home. You know, most of the time when Jesus heals a paralytic, He tells them, pick up your pallet and go. And I, I think it's really picturesque too because the person gets up and carries, carries what he had been carried on. So the Son of Man is able to answer His critics, the scribes, who are in every way an obstacle to the healing. So now we come to the crowd. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. That's the everyone here. That's the crowd. So that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is very much like uh, what people say in Mark chapter 1, verse 27. What's this? A new teaching with authority. And this section is about Jesus' authority. Why should we follow Him? And so the crowd respond in a way that the scribes do not. They were glorifying God. To glorify God means to accept what God has done as true and to recognize that God has done what God has done. That is, to recognize the truth about who God is. To glorify God. To give Him credit. To recognize the weight of glory that God has. And so to glorify God means to accept and recognize and accept as true what God has done. Now let me come back to the paralytic for just a moment. Now that we've read the whole passage, I think it's a little clearer. Now I'm reading between the lines, so, so forgive me if this seems like it's a stretch, but I think this is borne out by the passage. I think the persistence of the paralytic's friends is perhaps related to the paralytic himself insisting that they get him there. Why, is he, why does he want to get to Jesus so bad? Okay. <clears throat> what I think he wants is forgiveness more than anything else. Now, now let me just kind of throw this forward into, into our world. Suppose some televangelist were, were doing this meeting and they lowered a guy in from the roof. I mean, that would seem like spectacle, wouldn't it? You know, um, 
that we'd all say that was staged, right? Now, what would, the, what would a televangelist do in this situation? He'd say, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home, right? And the guy would do it because the guy wasn't really paralyzed, you know, let him down through the roof. But you see what I mean? The main focus of today's religiosity, maybe even, then, maybe even Jesus' day, would have been the healing, right? And I think the reason why the guy on the pallet wants to get to Jesus is not because he wants to be healed, but because he wants to be forgiven. Because he knows that, that, he, that he needs forgiveness more than anything else. And when he comes to Jesus wanting forgiveness, he gets something he doesn't expect. Because Jesus says this almost privately to the guy, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's like, wow, hey, I come to Jesus and I get more than I expected. Isn't that how it always works? If you do things God's way, God provides for your needs, and you get more than you expect. Now, I can't say that, you know, I don't have the authority to, to tell someone, get up out of your wheelchair and wheel that thing on home. Sure wish I did. But Jesus does it so that we can know who He is. And that's what this crowd does. They recognize Jesus for who He is. We have never seen anything like this. So we've looked at the paralytic, his friends. We've looked at the Son of Man who's the center of God's plan. We've looked at the scribes, his enemies. You know, all these people are, are, are over on Jesus' side, the, the friends, the paralytic, the crowd. And the scribes are the only ones who are left out in this story. But you know, it applies to us still. I know I can't, I can't heal paralysis, but I can tell you where forgiveness of sins can be found. And that's in Jesus Christ. I am forgiven in Jesus Christ apart from the performance of any religious ceremony, religious obligation, jumping through hoops, because the Son of Man declared it to be so on His own authority. And He's the one who paid the price to make it happen. And so my obligation in this living parable, if you will, is to put myself in the, in the paralytic, the formerly paralytic sandals. I don't know, did he wear shoes? I don't know. But I'm to put myself in his place and to pick up my pallet and walk. See, when Jesus, will you allow me the stretch here? When Jesus forgives your sins, your obligation is to walk, to live, to act, to respond in obedience in a way that's consistent with that forgiveness. And so I, I think the Apostle Paul illustrates this really well. In Philippians 1.27 he says, Only conduct yourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of the Messiah. 
people at Philippi would have understood exactly what Paul meant because he said, conduct yourselves as citizens. The people in Philippi were citizens of Rome, even though they actually didn't live in Rome, because Philippi was a land-grant colony. That meant that the people who lived there with the land-grant enjoyed all the rights and privileges of being Roman citizens, even though they didn't actually live within the boundaries of Rome. So when Paul says that to the Philippians, conduct yourselves as citizens, he hits them in the same way that should hit us because we are to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of the Messiah. That is, consistent with the forgiveness that we have been granted because we trust in the Son of Man's authority to forgive our sins. We learn from the Gospel of John and to grant us eternal life. Salvation comes in none other but Jesus Christ. That means that if you're here this morning and perhaps someone has carried you here on a pallet, maybe even against your will, you're here, or you were polite and you accepted the invitation to come, they brought you to the right place. Because here stands Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven because of what I have done for you on the cross. Your only response is not to walk down one of these aisles. It's not to make some promise that you'll never sin again. Your response is to accept as true what Jesus has said is true. And I'm telling you by the authority given to us in the Word of God that it is true. Today is your day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.